0: Welcome back, and for those of you who were not able to join us for the first panel, I'm Jen Mascott, co-director, along with Adam White of the C. Gray Center for the City of the Administrative State, and we are here today in the bowels of the Capitol building itself in the Senate Visitor Center, um, having some important discussions about Congress's interbranch role in relation to the executive and the court's. And this particular panel will try to tie in with some recent developments around town, uh, principally uh, kicked off by the unprecedented leak of a full draft opinion from the Supreme Court in the Dobbs case, which I think raises larger questions and discussions about the Supreme Court as an institution, but generally speaking, our institutions at the federal level. How are they working? How do they interact with each other? Congress has taken some action in response to increased security, Ask questions about the court. Uh, one of our panelists served on the President's Supreme Court Reform Commission. Others are frequent commentators on these issues or litigators before the court or former executive branch officials. So I look forward to a great uh, discussion. I'm gonna begin by introducing our moderator who will then introduce the rest of the panelists. So we are joined today by the Honorable Steve Engel who currently is at Deckert serving as a partner at New York and Washington offices um, advising on high profile trial and appellate matters um, in a wide range of civil litigation topics like administrative law, commercial litigation, constitutional law, and also counsels clients in connection with government congressional and internal investigations. Um, Most recently, until January 2021, for almost the entirety of the last administration, um, Steve served as the assistant attorney general in the office of legal counsel within the Department of Justice, which is a critical office for purposes of examining separation of powers questions because as the head of the office, Steve serves as the chief counsel to the AG, the principal legal advisor to the Executive branch and provided advice to the President and Cabinet Secretaries on a lot of critical constitutional and statutory questions, like on topics of national security, oversight, executive orders. Um, he, along with two of our members of our first panel, uh, received the DOJ's honor, the highest honor, the Edmund J. Randolph Award for Outstanding Service to the Department, along with Will Levy and Steve Bradbury earlier today. Um, before his appointment as Assistant Attorney General, He was a partner at Deckert and also was a deputy in the office of OLC. He also uh, was a former clerk to Justice Kennedy. He's a member of the Advisory Committee on Rules for the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. Teaches, for our purposes today, affiliated with Scalia Law School as an adjunct at the school, and then along with former Solicitor General Paul Clement and former White House Counsel Don McGann, the Gray Center is proud to claim an affiliation uh, with Steve, Don, and Paul as distinguished practitioners and residents. Specifically, Steve is the Chief Justice William H. Rehnquist, distinguished practitioner in residence at the Gray Center. So with that, I will turn it over to Steve to lead us on what no doubt will be a really great, uh, vigorous discussion. Thanks.
1: Uh, uh, Thank you, Jen, for that generous introduction. This is a very timely discussion, and we have a really terrific panel here uh, today. Uh, We're meeting here just a block away uh, from the Supreme Court, but Uh, The block between Congress and the Great Marble Steps of the Court has long seemed to be a very significant gap. Congress is where the representatives of the American people meet to debate and disagree and in good times adopt laws in the public interest. Uh, This is a place of voting, debate, and politics. Supreme Court is and must be a very different place uh, where the justices, although appointed through a political process, approach important questions uh, through a very different lens. They may and do disagree on the outcomes of cases, but they agree that cases should be decided on principles of law. The text of the Constitution and statutes, structure, history, and precedent. Uh, The neutrality of the judicial process here is is really critical, and its perception of its neutrality is critical to the rule of law and and the legitimacy of many of our institutions beyond the court. Lately though, it's become fashionable to speak about a crisis of legitimacy at the court. You know, what this means differs quite a bit with the Speaker. Many of these disagreements start simply with perceptions concerning the fairness of the recent nominations process. Others really just object to outcomes. And in particular, the fact that the current court has six justices appointed by Republican presidents and is at least expected uh, to have a more conservative tilt uh, than it has in the past. You know, during the the 2016 election, These concerns led uh, to a number of proposals, mostly from the left side of the spectrum, for structural reforms, whether it's to pack the court, uh, whether it's to impose by changing the number of justices uh, beyond what that number, the number of nine, which has lasted since the the administration of President Grant. Uh, uh, Others talked about uh, adopting term limits, um in sort of ending what is the somewhat arbitrary nature of lifetime appointments in which where vacancies uh, occur uh, may have a real impact on the future direction of the court. Uh, Still others lately have been talking about Congress adopting uh, new ethics standards for the courts or recusal standards and the like uh, to deal with what they perceive to be issues arising uh, from one justice or another, generally people with whose jurisprudence they disagree. Um, Lately, of course, uh, the news about the court Uh, has been dominated by a different encroachment of politics and what is a truly unprecedented uh, leak of a draft opinion from the court, Uh, specifically the Dobbs case, which is considering the future of Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Uh, It's difficult, I think, at least in my view, to understate the significance of this leak uh, and the impact it may have on future operations at the court. Uh, Some have sought to sort of, in my view, blur the issues by talking both about the leak uh, and the outcome uh, uh, presaged in the draft opinion. Uh, but I think you know, these two things have to be kept separate. And, and retired Justice Kennedy, uh, who you know, is himself one of the authors of Planned Parenthood versus Casey, had no trouble distinguishing between the trouble, troubling nature of this leak uh, and the potential results suggested by the draft opinion. Uh, last week, Justice Kennedy uh, did not mince words. He called the leak a cowardly, corrupt, and contemptuous act Which was nothing less than an attack on the court as an institution, and he called upon the federal judiciary to take the moment to recommit itself to the idea of absolute judicial independence, of absolute integrity in in its deliberations. The question remains how the current justices will deal with this and uh, what the rest of us can do to protect and support uh, the neutrality and the legitimacy of the institution. Uh, So we're here today to talk about the current status of the court the significance of the leak, and the value of many of the current legislative proposals that people have been discussing, Uh, and we have, you know, a really terrific panel, uh, each of whom has done a lot of thinking and practice uh, in the law and the institutions of our government. Uh, Let me, uh, I'm going to briefly address each of their backgrounds, although we have only limited time, and if I were to give, uh, you know, any of them or all of them their due, uh, that would eat up uh, quite a bit of our time. Uh, Judge Tom Griffith. Uh, is special counsel at Hun Andrews Kurth, having joined the firm following his retirement from the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit in 2020. Judge Griffith served with distinction on that court for 15 years. Prior to joining, he had served at the Senate Legal Counsel, which is the Chief Legal Officer of the United States Senate, uh, as well as the General Counsel of Brigham Young University. Uh, And of direct relevance to our panel, Judge Griffith recently completed his tenure, Uh, by serving on President Biden's commission on the Supreme Court of the United States, during which he had occasion to think about many of the proposed changes to the structure of the court uh, that folks have recently been discussing. Uh, Our next member, uh, Sarah Isger, has served in all three branches of government. Sarah is currently the host of the legal podcast Advisory Opinions for the Dispatch, so she's the most famous one of us on this panel. Uh, before that, Sarah served as the director of the Office of Public Affairs at the Department of Justice uh, during Attorney General Sessions' time at the department. A graduate of Harvard Law School, she clerked on the Fifth Circuit, and has also held several political posts, including uh, as a deputy campaign manager for Carly Fiorina, and as a political director of Texans for Ted Cruz. Uh, maybe next time you guys will win the, the presidency <laughs> in, your, in your next campaign. Oh, uh, you
2: know. no, wait, oh and three. Uh,
1: <laughs> <laughs> In uh, our third panelist, uh, Jeff Wall is a partner at Sullivan and Cromwell, where he heads its Supreme Court and uh, appellate practice. Jeff is the former acting Solicitor General of the United States, uh, and has served for several and served for several years as the principal deputy Solicitor General. Um, before that, uh, as an assistant as well in the office, Jeff is well respected uh, as one of the top oral advocates at the Supreme Court. Today and he has argued thirty cases at the court, including several major cases on the separation of powers, constitutional rights, and executive authority. Uh, I also had the privilege, in addition to working with Sarah, to working with Jeff for a number of years at the Department of Justice, and can uh, fully attest to both of their uh, excellent judgment. Uh, uh, Jeff, clerk for Associate Justice Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court, and Judge Wilkinson uh, on the Fourth Circuit. Uh, now, each of our panelists will, uh, you know, will start by they'll each will offer some remarks. Um, on the court in the current situation, then we'll have some discussion among the panelists and open to questions from the
3: audience. So, Judge Griffith, start us off. Thank you, thank you, Steve. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm grateful to be here. I'm glad to do anything associated with the Boyd and Gray Center. Uh, uh, Boyd and Gray, is a, a giant uh, in our time, and has done so much service to the country, and I'm I'm indebted to him. I'm especially pleased to to be able to appear with uh, three folks who I admire so much and have had such a Profound influence on my thinking. I, I'm here, I think, largely because President Biden uh, appointed me to the Presidential Commission on the Supreme Court of the United States. I was one of the handful of conservatives who made the project bipartisan. Uh, others uh, included uh, Adam White uh, in the audience, Will Bode, uh, Judge uh, David Levy, Keith Whittington, Jack Goldsmith, Caleb Nelson. Am I leaving anyone out, Adam? I think that was the, the, the group. I hope I didn't. It <laughs> Depends on who he has. There, 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 there were there weren't many of us. There weren't many of us, but we we made it uh, uh, bipartisan. Uh, I think it's important to re- recall the origin of the uh, of the commission. Uh, in response to a question of whether he favored expansion of the size of the Supreme Court, uh, a move favored by many, if not all, of his rivals for the nomination, candidate Biden promised a commission to examine the role of the Supreme Court. The, the task of the commission that was created was, was, a, was something that was often overlooked in, in the, the public discussion and uh, in, in media reporting of it. Uh, the, the task of it was that we were to describe the current debate over the Supreme Court. We were not authorized to make uh, any recommendations. That was an interesting uh, move made uh, by the White House, and I'll let you decide wh- why they did that and what effect it it, it it might have had. I think it had an ameliorative effect on the discussions that we were able to have, which I think, uh, and maybe we got to get Adam up here to, I think we had the same experience. I, I think it was really a, a great experience. We were allowed full voice. Um, I think uh, our perspectives were uh, not only appreciated, but they were sought after, um, and I think they were reflected uh, in, in the report, which, by the way, I have one of the few hard copies here. Most of it's available online. You're busy people, but it's worthwhile. It's, I think it's well done. I think it's well done. I think particularly Chapter 1, uh, not only because that's the subcommittee I worked on, but um, uh, a, a discussion of the history of the debate over the Supreme Court since the founding is really quite, quite, uh, quite <coughs> uh, illuminating. Now, as to the need for a commission. Um, I, I think it's pretty apparent that uh, there is dissatisfaction by uh some political progressives uh with some of the decisions of the Roberts Court, Citizen United, Shelby County uh in particular. There's also anxiety uh amongst progressives about what the court might do about abortion uh and challenges to the structure and, and power of, of agencies. Throughout throughout the debate uh, there was a consistent refrain calling into question the legitimacy of, of, of the Supreme Court, and that took that took its, uh, that expressed itself in various arguments. One was there was uh, concern about the blocking of Merrick Garland's confirmation and the speedy approval of Justice Barrett's. <clears throat> Somehow, that led to a legitimacy crisis in the view of some—not uh, me. Um, uh, we heard frequently the fact that uh, the three most recent appointments to the Supreme Court. Uh, Prior to, prior to Justice Jackson, were made by a president who had lost the popular vote and were confirmed by senators whose states didn't make up a majority of the population of the United States. Once again, arguments I disagreed with, that, were, but were marshaled in support of some claim that the Supreme Court lacks legitimacy. Uh, if you want a representative example of this argument, you can go to the uh, uh, Michael Klarman's foreword to the Harvard Law Review in 2020. Uh, 20, Uh, uh, If if you don't have time to read Professor Klarman's uh, uh, very long uh, piece, I'll I'll just give you the title. The Degradation of American Democracy and the Court. Uh, But those sorts of views were, uh, 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 we heard a lot of them in the discussion uh, amongst the commissioners. This is a footnote, if you want a response. Uh, to Professor Klarman's article. Uh, There's one uh, that I wrote uh, called uh, The Degradation of Civic Charity, uh, arguing that uh, uh, Professor Klarman's approach, though though learned, is not helpful uh, in our client. Uh, Another type of argument that we heard that attacked the legitimacy of the court uh, was the argument from Senator Whitehouse, which he continues to to make uh, this argument that somehow dark money has corrupted the appointment uh, process. Uh, The two most significant issues uh, we heard were uh, proposals for court expansion and term limits. Uh, I was critical of uh, the court expansion view. When I was appointed to the commission, everything I learned on the commission confirmed uh, that view. When I was appointed to the commission, I was actually open to term limits. Uh, Over time, however, I became opposed, and if you're interested, maybe I can... Well, court, court packing, that's an easy one, right? That, that, that it, 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 at the outset, it abandons the ideal that uh, the justices uh, should be impartial uh, and that justices are not partisan roots and robes. Term limits was a little more uh, uh, complicated for, uh, for me, uh, but I, I came to the view that the appointment process under the term limit proposal, the appointment process would appear uh, more partisan because the issue... Of judicial appointments would be on the ballot every two years. Um, I'm, I'm of the view uh, that that this notion of an impartial judiciary uh, is not only an aspiration, but that in most instances, not all, in most instances, it describes uh, the, the reality of, of, of the judiciary. Um, now, some... Full disclosure here, Um, uh, if you recall back in the day when uh, uh, Senator Reid blew up the uh, filibuster, abandoned the filibuster for judicial uh, nominations, right around that time, uh, Judge Wilkinson wrote an op-ed piece in the Washington Post that I think turned out to be quite prescient. Judge Wilkinson observed that judicial appointments are not first-order interest for most citizens. They're second-order interest. And if you get rid of the filibuster, what will happen is uh, the special interest will will come to the fore and you'll enhance their hand in the appointment of of judges. Now, uh, uh, here's where the full disclosure comes in. Uh, I'm a my appointment to the D.C. Circuit was a product of the judicial filibuster. Uh, I'm what you get when you want Miguel Estrada, <laughs> but you face a filibuster. <laughs> so I'll let you decide whether the filibuster is a good thing or not. I, I have some bias uh, uh, in the regard. Here, here, here's, my, here's, my, here's my view. We have to preserve the ideal of an impartial uh, judiciary. Ar- arguments like Professor Klarman's and Senator Whitehouse's do great damage Uh, to the public perception of the judiciary. I I think of uh, the social psychologist Jonathan Haidt, the author of The Righteous Mind, who said in an interview recently uh, that he predicted a catastrophic failure of American democracy. Why? He said, because we just don't know what happens to a democracy when you drain all trust from the system. So I, I cast my lot with those who argue that we should not abandon the ideal, we should not give in to the notion that judges are are, are partisans in robes. Uh, it, my experience of the D.C. Circuit, in 15 years that I was on the circuit, I never once saw a vote cast by a colleague that I thought was driven by some partisan interest. L- legal disagreements, to be sure, but I never saw one... That was uh, uh, driven by a partisan interest. Now, maybe I'm naive. Maybe I'm too slow. Maybe it was all going on and I missed it. But, but I, I don't think so because uh, I was watching uh, carefully for it. Um, uh, the arguments over law, not policy. Uh, justice Breyer gives the same report from the Supreme Court. Not having been a justice on the Supreme Court or clerk there. All, I'll, I'll leave it to you, uh, whether that's accurate or not. Uh, but, you know, democracy is a, is a fragile possibility in the best of times, and its success relies on public confidence in institutions such as the Supreme Court. Those on the left and the right who would use the court as little more than an instrument to achieve political ends do great harm uh, uh, to our institutions, to the Supreme Court. And uh, my, my counsel to them is be really careful about... Uh, what you say about the court uh, and 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 the arguments you make in, in pursuit of your uh, political objectives. So.
2: Okay, well, uh, I'm going to talk about a little bit, I think, sort of a grand unified theory that I'm working on as to why the Dobbs leak happened. Um, and really why the court as an institution, I think, is drowning a little bit right now. Why its poll numbers are going down. We saw what happened when Congress's poll numbers have gone down. They've never stopped. I mean, like, literally nobody approves of Congress anymore. We're out of people to, to keep the number going down. Um, <clears throat> we're going to end with wolves in Yellowstone. So that's where we're headed. And it's just going to take us a little while to get there. Um, <clears throat> obviously, the, the court was supposed to be the least dangerous branch. And I don't think there's any one simple explanation for when and how that stopped. but. I want to provide a pivotal moment, at least, in that, which is certainly the Warren Court. Uh, not necessarily because the Warren Court was wrong or legally untethered, but because the Warren Court showed the American people and, frankly, the other two branches what the court was capable of doing. If you've got a political problem, the court at least has the ability to solve, to insert itself into that problem and potentially solve it itself without amending the Constitution, without any statutory guidance from Congress. Um, and, and so it stood out there as like a little like, huh, that's interesting. Uh, you fast forward um, and shortly thereafter you're gonna start seeing confirmation hearings uh, get more contentious it you know, look up through the Truman administration. I actually looked this up. Uh, confirmation from nomination to confirmation was often less than a week, but I found like lots, like not counting on single hand, lots that were done the same day. A president would nominate and they would just like walk over to First Street and like head on up. Um, the one exception, by the way, Andrew Johnson nominated this guy, Stanbury, uh, to the court. He'd end up becoming his attorney general and defending him in the impeachment trial, but before that, nominated to the Supreme Court, and the Republicans in the Senate were so angry um, about, you know, well, basically President Johnson existing that they not only blocked Stanbury from getting on the court, they passed the Judicial Act of whatever that was, 1867, reducing the court to seven seats. So talk about a Supreme Court commission. Uh, I'm just not sure the Johnson administration is where we want to head or emulate. Um, Okay, so confirmation hearings get more contentious. And I just... It is, fast forward to the last confirmation hearing, and it was just baffling to me to watch senators grill a potential justice about her criminal sentencing when they are the ones who can set minimum sentences. And just no real acknowledgement of that and the role that Congress could play instead. this idea that judges are just out there doing it all. Um, Or Congress's role in superseding Supreme Court opinions by statute, used to happen all the time, and has happened in our lifetime, um, uh, you know, Rifra, Relupa, the Lily Ledbetter Act, though, is really the last one that I've been able to come up with as a major one, and I think that was sort of a last gasp of superseded by statuteness, um, but think about the rallying cries in partisan campaigns right now, Shelby County, Citizens United. Both of those could in various ways be superseded by statute to so drastically change the landscape. You could do a different preclearance formula. You could create an entirely different campaign finance system that would make super PACs irrelevant. Um, Bostock. Conservatives are upset about the definition of sex in Title VII. Gosh, what could ever possibly be done about that, Senator? Um, So what does that have to do with the Dobbs leak? Because once Congress learned their own incentives that they don't have to do anything, and obviously the executive branch plays an important role in this as well, Obama saying that um, he wanted to work with Congress, but if they wouldn't do it, he had a pen and a phone. Once you tell Congress that, that you'll do it anyway, guess what? Why would they risk their elections, their political careers on compromise? Because the way that our system is set up the obviously everyone wants to be reelected, though it's not entirely clear why to me. Um, <laughs> you're worried about being flanked from the right or being flanked by the middle? What does legislation do? It forces you to compromise <laughs> towards the middle so that you're going to get flanked by the right, or the left, obviously. Uh, <clears throat> that's exactly what we've seen happen. And so as the executive branch has been willing to exert more power, often unconstitutional power, Or the courts will simply rule on something without amending the Constitution or a statute. Congress has been like, this is the best 20 year vacation ever. Uh, You can see an overall decline in the amount of legislation, uh, even bills being proposed in Congress, though I think that number is misleading because obviously, like renaming a post office counts the same as uh, the Affordable Care Act. You know, these large omnibus bills only count as one on the one hand, and at the same time, like stupid stuff counts too. Uh, So, to me, the Dobbs leak happens because the court has become so, so important. It's not the least dangerous branch anymore. It and the executive have replaced Congress entirely. Instead of a three legged stool, we have like one leg that's two inches and the other two legs have grown four inches to compensate. It's not sustainable. You can't have a government um, made up with two branches and 535 cable news pundits. And by the way, it's changing who even runs for Congress. These folks aren't hiring legislative staff. They're hiring more comm staff with their budget. Uh, good people choosing not to run, I'm thinking of here the governor of New Hampshire, the governor of Arizona, not because they're worried they'll lose, they're worried they'll win and they'll have to work here. What would be the point? Uh, so, of course, if everything is then focused on the court as the only place that change can happen, because we're not amending, we're not legislating, then, yeah, the Dobbs draft is going to leak in the same way that the other institutions will be under enormous political pressure. Uh, The court had been protected from that for a long time. So why do I mention Wolves and Yellowstone? Um, Because this is actually in the court's power to fix. I love Judge Griffith's point that people should... We're allowed to curse on this panel, surely. Uh, The, like, don't be an asshole rule. Uh, People should not be assholes. I agree. But they will be because it's in their incentive to do so. But the court can actually fix this themselves. I'm thinking here of the Clean Power Plan case. If you were a climate... Activist. You really care about climate change. The worst thing that can happen to you is that you win this case at the Supreme Court and uphold the EPA's regulation and the clean power plan. Why? Because Congress will have just learned that once again, they don't have to do anything. And if you actually know anything about climate change, you need a 20-year, a 50-year plan to address climate change. Not a regulation that was passed in the Obama administration, changed in the Trump administration. The Biden administration repeals it but won't say what they're gonna do next. So we're all just wondering. And the Supreme Court has the ability to keep pushing things back to Congress, change those incentives. And the very smart question that I got back uh, from an editor about this was, okay, but then what if Congress still doesn't do anything? Well, that would be the end of the republic, I grant you. Um, But I think this path is too. And so we get to Yellowstone. 20 years ago, they reintroduced wolves to Yellowstone. And uh, yes, The elk population declined quite precipitously there for a hot minute, but then all these other things happened that they couldn't possibly have guessed. It turned out the elk population had been overeating the grass and had totally changed the plant environment in Yellowstone. That one they kind of knew. So when the elk population went down and became much healthier, the plant population then became healthier, and then beavers came back to Yellowstone. It's a bit of a you know a strained metaphor, but I think that if Congress gets out of the way, it may take a minute for the plants to come back, but beavers are going to come back to the hill <laughs> is overall what I'm here to say. <laughs> Jeff. <laughs>
1: and, and we like beavers. Beavers are
2: good. They're cute and they're fuzzy and they've got those tails. They're going to the
4: so wood. Obviously, I'm here to talk more about beavers on the hill. <laughs> uh, so, I, first, thanks to Jen and the Grace Center for having me. It's uh, it's a real treat to be up here with Judge Griffith and Steve and um, and uh, and Sarah. So, uh, you know, uh, I'm the gossip guy. I'm supposed to talk about Dobbs and what's happening at the court. But you know, a quick response to to Sarah. I think there's uh, I, I think there is a lot of truth to the idea <clears throat> that when Congress deadlocks and decides not to act, That rather than accept the idea that what that means in a system like ours is that the country is so evenly divided that not much should happen. Both sides do agitate through whatever institutions are available. The other branches will become more important and it will put more pressure on the court. I I would say two things. One, I sort of broaden out the theory a little bit, which is to say there's a lot of influences there, like Judge Griffith's good point about losing the filibuster, which I think has led to polarization or increased polarization for lower court nominees and over time, that will have effects within the system as serious as what goes on at the at the Supreme Court. Um, and I'd also say that, you know, although part of this has been thrust on the court, I think the court um, it bears uh, some share of the, the blame, too. You know, I'll point to only sort of two things that the court has done. One is to allow for an expansion in state standing, so that uh, for a very long time, states couldn't bring what were called parens patriae suits. But lately, states have started to put forward the kinds of injuries that traditionally wouldn't have counted for suit, but now do. So Texas wants to sue over DACA and DAPA. Well, it has to give driver's licenses to to folks who want to take advantage of those policies. Pennsylvania and Massachusetts don't like the contraception rules that the Trump administration put out. Mm -hmm. Well, they can point to what they think will be an increase in their health care costs under their own state systems. And once those injuries start to count for state standing, as they do appear to under, you know, current law, the red states and blue states will always be able to sue. In a, You know, Democrats win the White House, the red states will sue. Republicans win the White House, the Democrats will sue. And in a world where you have things like nationwide injunctions, provisional class cert, and all the rest, Uh, You will have um, large politically charged coalitions able to sue over every issue of the day and attain very broad remedies in court, which will put a lot of pressure on the system for these politically charged cases to fly up to the Supreme Court. And if we collectively believe that these controversies should often be resolved places other than the court, then I think we ought to spend more time urging the court to reconsider whether it ought to place some limits on the ability to sue and obtain broad remedies. We, we ought not accept that sort of the current regime is not at least partly a product of what the court itself has allowed by opening the, the courthouse doors. So. That's all I have to say on wolves and beavers, um, and i'll I'll turn to the leak and I guess what I, what I'd say is i'm although I think. I I agree with Sarah's theory. I'm not actually sure how much it explains about the leak, which is to say I don't know that the leak was sort of driven by the larger pressures on the system. And I guess that's because I don't see it as a standalone event. I see it as part of a more unfortunate pattern. So I clerked at the court in 2004, 2005, not that long ago, you know, fewer than 20 years ago. I mean, I'm old, but I'm not that old. And there were plenty of flips and interesting opinions or parts of opinions that never saw the light of, of day, votes that changed. And, I, you know, look, I, 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 it wasn't Bush v. Gore, but we had a number of, you know, Kilo and Raich and Booker. We had a number of quite significant cases. None of that saw the light of day, and neither did the things that happened in the years immediately preceding or the years that, that followed immediately. But that has not been true for the last couple of years. It's become almost a sort of rite of passage that at the end of the term, Joan Biskupic writes a wonderful expose which sort of uh, reveals some of what went on in conference in the major cases and changes in the justices votes Um, and then more recently um, there were leaks surrounding Bostock Um, and what some conservative justices were, were how they had voted. Um, And then, of course, before the leak of the Dobbs draft, only a few days before, there was the Wall Street Journal op-ed, which speculated, though seemed... To be based on, on uh, some you know, reasonably good intelligence, that some members of the conserv- the conservative wing of the court were wavering and the chief justice was attempting to peel off their votes for a narrower opinion in Dobbs that would only say something about the viability line and not go to overturning Roe and, and Casey. All of those are, are I think, uh, sort of parts of a really unfortunate pattern that has developed in the last you know, seven to, to ten years. Um, and I think we have to see the leaks situated in that. Now, maybe the Bostic and Journal leaks were not leaks by the right that were an effort to shore up the court, though that seems the most plausible explanation that's been floated. And if that was right, if those leaks did come from the right side of the court, then it was almost inevitable that the left would respond. I'm not saying that that's what happened with the leak, but whatever the explanation, the norm has been eroding for some number of years. Now, that's it. the leak is different by an order of magnitude from what went before. There are roughly a half dozen people in the audience who clerked at the court. All of us up here have been associated with it for some time. I mean, it is an unimaginable breach of trust. Justice Kennedy's remarks are spot on. It is a contemptuous act that holds contempt for the court's process. It is a contemptible act. It, is, it was a despicable thing um, to do. But in a world in which we have started to think that the court is no longer a black box, but little leaks can be weaponized in order to try to shift public opinion in a way that will affect votes, it's no longer as unthinkable as it was 20 years ago. And the only way to ensure that this happens is to return the court to a black box, which requires a shared commitment by all of the justices there. Justice Scalia used to say to all of his clerks, and he was much harsher than Justice Thomas, but Justice Thomas had the same Message what he called the ad terram speech. You know, we're gonna have a lot of very, uh, Hasha smiling, because I'm sure he got the speech. We're gonna have lots of very candid conversations in our chambers, but if you ever say anything to anyone outside the court about any of them, and I find out that it was you, I will do everything within my power to ruin your career. And that's the kind of commitment that it takes, and that has historically existed at the court, and doesn't seem to be present in the current set of justices in, in quite the same way. I think, depending on what happens with the investigation, it will affect the court in a serious way. Potentially, both the dynamics between the justices and the law clerks, and the justices, uh, the justice-to-justice justice, uh, dynamic. Bracket that for one minute. Um, I think the court will almost certainly have to adopt information security protocols similar to what some agencies and corporations have done going forward. Uh, I hope that's wrong, um, but I, I think that it might well be the, the outcome of this. I hope, though, that after this, it, it will pass right? Decades ago, a clerk at the court wrote a book, Edward Lazarus wrote a book called Closed Chambers, in which he he disclosed all sorts of inside information about what had happened this term. Some of it, um, quite derogatory to some of the other clerks at the court in an effort to harm their careers. I think it was largely, though not entirely, met with, um, with disappointment and, and outrage, but it passed. Other clerks and through the efforts of the justices, uh, adopted, um, were imbued with the ethic that that behavior was no longer acceptable. The court can move past this and return to what I think all of us who have been associated with it think is a much better way for the court to function. It just, as I say, will take a shared commitment on the part of of everyone there. Now, the reason I say depending on what happens with the investigation is I think there have been a lot of assumptions about what happened, but we, we don't really know. Was it a law clerk? Was it an employee? I think much about how the court reacts will turn on whether they get answers to those questions and what the answers were. I hope um, that if it was someone inside the, the, the court, um, that it was an employee rather than a law clerk. I think that will do less damage to the institution going forward, but we'll see. I think maybe more than the leak, the investigation will test the court uh, itself. My own view is that to move past it, they need to find who did it or at least make every effort possible to find that person and feel as if they have done everything that they can. Uh, You can't treat it as crossing the Rubicon unless, having found yourself on the other side, you do everything possible to determine how you got there. Otherwise, it wasn't really the Rubicon. Now, what does that look like? I think the most common uh, sort of uh, method that's been floated is to do affidavits or some kind of sworn declaration on behalf of all the clerks and employees who could possibly have a- access um, to, the, uh, to the draft. You know, whatever form that exact takes, you know, to, I, I don't know. You know. I think the main question is, like, will everyone participate? Will all of the chambers, all of the justices, and all of the law clerks decide to um, to sign those statements and allow the investigation to proceed? I think that's the, um, at least that's the, the question on the table that I'm sort of most interested to see right now. Um, because I do think that there is a far from a certainty. But I do think that there is some substantial chance that they could find who did it if everyone participates in the investigation. Um, I think another effect of this is security. Um, Fortunately, the judiciary has been relatively free from violence over the years. Not entirely free. There have been some horrible incidents, but relatively free. Um, I think though, in the I mean, it was a cherished norm that one did not leak opinions from the Supreme court. And so as we sit here debating what to do now that this cherished norm no longer is as sacrosanct as once it was, I think we ought not to depend on the idea that that cherished norm, that judges' disagreements and rulings are left at the courthouse door and that they uh, should not be made the targets of, of violence for what they do on the job. I don't think we should just assume that that norm will remain safe or sacrosanct either. I think we should hope for the best, but assume the worst. Uh, I I believe that the justices are taking precautions, and I think on a more systemic basis, we all ought to think about what a world looks like where we protect all of the Article 3 judges, not just uh, the court, um, in a way that tries to diminish whatever risks they face. Um, And, you know in the wake of last night's senseless tragedy, it's, uh, it, we would do well to try to ensure that we don't see one that visits the institution across the street or any of our courthouses. Where does that leave us? Um, you saw Justice Thomas's recent remarks, or probably many of you did. He, he said something on the order of the fact that, you know, this court is, is different from the court that he served on for, um, for a long time. And the court is a family. For a long time, as Justice Thomas said, it might have been a dysfunctional family, but it was still a family. And you had happy warriors like Justice Scalia and Justice Stevens and Justice Breyer, um, who inspired a great deal of exasperation and even hostility from their colleagues, but they also inspired affection. They were happy warriors. Um, And this family is uh, different. Uh, It may not get along. Quite as well as the family that uh, sat on the court for a very long time. I think some people took um, Justice Thomas's remarks as as somehow about the chief's arrival in in two thousand five. You know, we were all talking about this yesterday, and and Steve expressed a view, and I share it that you know I took it a little more broadly than that. I mean, from the time when I finished clerking in 05, Justice Thomas is the only justice who remains. Otherwise. All of the personnel on the court has changed. It's just an entirely different group. It has a very different dynamic. Um, And it may be um, more dysfunctional and less happy than the family that preceded it. Um, And Steve made the excellent point yesterday, and it's it's right, that this is also no longer a 5-4 court. I mean, many of us clerked on a court where um, every case or at least every important case was up for grabs and you needed the vote of a Justice Kennedy or a Justice O'Connor. Um, and in a world where um, the court is no longer balanced in exactly that way, it may shift some of the incentives to uh, be civil, to try to build coalitions and when disappointed with an outcome to try to live and fight a, a, another day, right? Um, you know on that court, For instance, affirmative action was a very close call, and Justice O'Connor gave it another 25-year lease. Affirmative action is coming up again in the fall. If all members of the court thought that that issue was genuinely up for grabs in the fall, would the leak have happened? I I don't know. Um, But in a world in which maybe they don't think that issue is any longer up for grabs, does it affect everybody's incentives to get along? It it may. Um, And so I think that's where we are, waiting to see whether this is a real investigation and whether everybody participates, hoping that we can address the security challenges that the judiciary faces, and above all else, hoping that, at least for me, that the chief and the associate justices, through the clerks and through the employees, rededicate themselves to the idea that this is not how the court is supposed to function they can keep this from happening they s- slipped in recent years and uh, but they can they can get it back if they want to
1: great thanks Jeff well so we have a lot of threads we have a limited amount of time uh, why, don't, why don't we start yeah. uh, why don't we start with Dobbs um, and the leak and what should be done if a
3: well, let, let, let me, this is sort of related to that, but I, sure, I, I, w- I wanted to ask Jeff, uh, a, a lot of attention has been paid to Justice Thomas's uh, comments, um, and, uh, and and you described them w- well today. I, I'm wondering if 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 there could be another explanation for his uh, comparison between the old days and the new days, and that's simply that um, in the old days, it, it was stable. They, they had had a long time to yeah. work out these relationships, and this is a new group, right? They're a relative new group, and it takes... Takes uh, experiences together to form those uh, bonds of affection. Is it,
4: is is that a too hopeful explanation? You think, or I, I, I think that's part of it. But I think uh, it. It's only sort of the optimistic explanation if you think that as they all serve together that they'll kind of get more comfortable with the family over time. You know, the in-laws married in, and if we only give them a few years, maybe we'll decide we all get along a little better. Um, And I just think uh, my own view on this is that um, some of the newer justices have... Very forceful personalities, and when you compare them to somebody who was, are you going to name names? It's, it's,
3: it's, it's not as it's not as if there weren't forceful personalities before. No,
4: but I look, I, you know, Justice Stevens was in his own way incredibly civil and genteel. Justice Souter, while he had strong views, was mild mannered and genteel. Justice Breyer is a happy warrior. You know, I, Justice Ginsburg was nothing if not elegant and poised. I mean, look, I, I'm not saying that you know this is a group of ruffians or anything. They're they're all great jurists, but. They have very strong views, and I do think that they have, they, ideologically, some of them are, um, they flank the people that they replaced. And so when you, when you think about the fact that their differences substantively are wider than they used to be, and they all came on within a relatively short amount of time, so it's not as if each was already joining a family that was pretty comfortable, um, I just, I think it's a different dynamic. Um, and and um, I, my, I, my guess is though I've never talked to him about it I have no inside baseball my guess is that that's what Justice Thomas was was talking about um, and I I think it's I, I think it probably shows up in a lot I, I, I'm not as sure that they have lunch together uh, in the way that they used to after conference as a sort of uh, tradition uh, that was I mean sort of almost set in stone or that they socialize well, I, outside I think the they court
3: they do I mean they say they do they say you know sixty times a year and. <laughs> I don't think that's changed I, I don't know about I, I, don't,
1: I don't I don't think Jeff was disputing the fact of lunch the
3: t- oh, the nature the, of the, the, lunch.
1: the, the, what the tone later. of the, yeah. uh, the cl- conversation but yeah. I mean but, but I don't I mean Jeff'll just take issue I don't know that the 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 ideology or the gaps are any larger than they used to be I think I think number one this is you know, this is personalities matter and you can have people who like a justice Scalia and Justice Ginsburg who you know famously or you know even somewhat you know clichely you know got along uh operated together and it didn't matter that they disagreed on many important points of principle including points that the court still disagrees on they got along and they socialized and if you have you only have 9 people there right i mean you know and personalities matter and i think that has the way in which they approach each other separate from the dis- the substantive disagreements i think uh play a role
2: i disagree uh, on your substantive point, though, because to your filibuster point, I could in fact, am currently working on like a whole thing on how getting rid of the judicial filibuster is affecting the legal community all the way down. When I was in law school uh, my 1L year was the same year that uh, Chief Justice Roberts was confirmed. Um, People wouldn't write things. Uh, They wouldn't write notes on the journal, uh, the JLPP, which is like the FedSoc Journal at Harvard. Uh, For law review, they were writing like the most boring jurisdictional, you know, subpart three things because they all aspire to be something someday that might involve a confirmation hearing. And the incentives at that point were to do nothing, say nothing, be nothing, and maybe you'd get picked. Uh, Now... It's the exact opposite incentives without the filibuster. You, in fact, need to move ideologically as far to the flank as possible, because otherwise someone will flank you further. Uh, We're about to have four justices on the Supreme Court who came up post-filibuster. I think it will take time um, for, again, for the beavers to come back to Yellowstone in the bad way there, or actually, now that we've removed the wolves um, in in this. Yeah, I'm going to fix my metaphor here. Uh, Right, all of a sudden there's going to be all these elks and the grass will be gone. Um, But we're already seeing it in the lower courts, and I don't want to name names, but the people auditioning for the Supreme Court are auditioning in very different ways. (laughs) And the opinions we're seeing, and the concurring with concurrences, and the writing the draft opinion for the dissenters so that when they take it on bonk, they can, I mean, that's pretty snarky stuff that wasn't happening before.
1: I mean, I, I agree with you on the lower courts that there is a difference in tone and that there is a change, and that the uh, the end of the filibuster has had a real impact uh, on the federal courts. Um, but uh, but I don't I don't I'm not sure that any of that describes what's going on at the Supreme Court. I do not see, for example, uh, the post filibuster justices as uh, reflecting difference in tone or more conservative collegial.
2: than Kennedy. We,
1: but but he's you know but. Arguably less conservative than Thomas and Alito, uh, you know, and or Scalia. Sure, arguably, but, I'm not not but characterizing yeah, <laughs> anyone fair. in particular. But, 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 what uh, but I don't said was see was that they're
2: flanking their replacements. And yeah, that's. Yeah, there's
1: no there's no question that the court itself yeah. appears to be more conservative than it used to be. But I think it would be a mistake to say that the justices as as different perhaps from some of, at the courts of appeals. But the justices who have been appointed since are ideologically different from the justices who came before.
4: Yeah, I mean, look, I think if you kind of look at the polls, Steve, I think you're right. Like, if you took Thomas and Ginsburg and you just kind of looked at it, I don't think you'd say that the polls have changed. I I think it's, it's more that the justices who have been coming onto the court are lining up more toward the polls, and we've lost as much of the center, and that seems to me to affect the dynamic.
1: And that's, oh, I, I think, I mean, look, as we've as we as we've talked about, I think the, the the risk of permanent winners and permanent losers is very different from, yeah. you know, 15 years ago. But but ultimately, that's not the individual justices. That's the math of the matter. Yep. And, you know, we seemed for a period of time, you know, we, we had a situation when, when I clerked, when you clerked, uh, when Justice O'Connor and Justice Kennedy appeared to sort of be at the center, and sometimes the right one, sometimes the left uh, one, and you know, and that that was a different environment. And you know, for a very brief period of time, it seemed as though Chief Justice Roberts might play a similar role. Uh, you know, in a number of critical cases where he was the decisive fifth vote. We're, you know, the, the story is still being written as we're as we're talking now. But if we are reaching a situation in which you know there are six right leaning justices and only five of six can decide important cases, we may well see a situation with permanent winners and losers. But again, you know, but, uh, and I have say, and we'll let other folks talk, but, you know, this is a long story, right, and those of us who have been around for, for a long time understand that uh, there have always been predictions of the future of the court, and historically those predictions, you know, as, you know, as at the time of Casey, you know, didn't go the way that people who were writing at the time thought it might go. So I hesitate to get ahead yeah. of actually the facts here, but, but there is at least the risk, given the numbers, given the nature of confirmation politics, that we do have a more conservative court with a more... Robust yeah, I mean, look,
4: back art. when Steve and I clerked, June was typically a fairly bad month for the right wing of the court. They lo- they, they tended to lose a lot more than they won, uh, and now they win more than they lose. I mean, as Steve says, these these, these stories shift.
3: And can, I want to pick up on something Sarah said. I, I agree with everything you said about... Your prescription for how we got to to where we are. In, in my mind, it's clearly an example of the uh, of the judiciary stepping outside its separation of powers lane, acting like a legislation legislator. And so, you're going to be treated like 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 policy. I agree with that entirely. My, my, my only point is, okay, so here we are. W- what what do we do about it? And one way we one way we can go, the way many members of the commission and the public urged, is let's just let's just get real, let's give up on the idea that judges are, are, are impartial and let's just recognize them for what they are, partisans in robes, right? And I, 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 think I don't want to give up on that ideal. I think if we do, um, I think we've lost something
2: And I think without critical. the filibuster, I think the filibuster is such a key point to that because without the filibuster, the judges will more and more act so there but, was incentives. It changes who becomes a judge, and it changes how they act uh, once they're on that, the court.
3: That may be true, and I, and, I, and I, you know, I can just offer just my little slide, my little view of of one part of the judiciary for one piece of time. And I just didn't see that. I just didn't see that happening. I, I, I saw differences in judicial philosophy, um, but you know, purposivists versus originalist sort of thing. Um, but I, but I but I just didn't see. Policy prescriptions driving it and that was the uh, so so will's father and I ser- uh, uh, served on the uh, uh, By the president's commission for and that was sort of the the drumbeat that we we made it like every meeting and and we had uh, a judge, uh, Nancy Gertner was a retired uh, district court judge on the commission and she had a very different view about what role judges played, but you know, we kind of felt, maybe I shouldn't speak for your father, we kind of, at the times I felt like, am I being silly here? Because no, I'm not seeing what, what you academics are writing about and what the media assumes. I'm just, I'm just not seeing that, so. I
2: think that the judges, though, uh, even the ones that were being confirmed as of 2020, 2019, they had still come up through their careers at a time where they thought they were going to need people from the other party. If you no longer need anyone from the other party, you're going to pick a team and you're going to play to that team.
3: Before, before confirmation. Confirmation.
2: Before confirmation, yeah. and then once you're confirmed, to the extent you have other ambitions, or again, it just changes who gets on the court in the first yeah. place. They were team players; they'll just stay but team not, players. Not, on the
3: not everybody has those ambitions, and, uh, and and even even it's not any, the thing and, with the
2: every senator looks in the mirror in the morning and says. No, the I don't, don't think president. so. I
3: don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> There's <Yeah. one>. <laughs> judge sits and, and, in the mirror and, 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 and sees a justice. And <laughs> even those who, you know, are mentioned for that, I, I just didn't see him doing it on partisan lines. Right? they're legal questions that you can debate over but not they're not they're not partisan ones now there are exceptions to that you I, didn't
2: I, think any I, of your colleagues uh, were ambitious no
3: they, they were but even those who were <laughs> ambitious many of them were but um, and, for, and they, they had good reason to be I mean they they were mentioned um uh, but even there i again and those were the ones I was watching most closely I didn't see them um, make decisions based on partisan partisan interest
1: and, and, and I mean, and Sarah, are you suggesting that the judges who came up post filibuster are making decisions based on partisan interest or simply that uh, they have incentives to be more vocal and sort of more kind of jurisprudentially in line with, with a certain thing? Yeah, I think it's right. worth
2: defining the term partisan here. Yeah. I do not mean politically partisan, Democrat, Republican necessarily, although it's going to end up mapping onto that relatively closely. Um, partisan, meaning to their own ambition, that the way to become a Supreme Court justice, get on a short list, become a feeder judge, you know, whatever um, sort of that ambition bundle of sticks is, that you now only need senators from one party. And uh, and so, yes, you are going to be more vocal. The way you write your opinion might be a little more snide because you want to get attention from Jess Braven to say, like, wow, that was a really, you know, silly opinion. Um, and that that itself perpetuates a... Uh, reputation that will help you in the long term. That's just a very different incentive structure than when we had the filibuster.
3: Right, and and, and I, the don't, Sarah, I don't, Sarah, I don't just, I don't disagree with that. I, I, my, I'm making perhaps a more modest point, but I think it's a very important point: is that it, it, they're not. Partisan in the sense of I'm trying to advance the the policies. Of I
2: agree with party. that. They're trying to advance themselves
3: Some and are, they will need
2: Republican or Democratic senators and only Republican or Democratic senators to advance themselves So yeah. partisan to their own right. Future Perhaps,
1: yeah, no, and I think that is an important clarification yeah. But let's let why don't we turn to a, a different topic that you know that that came up I'll be all these things are related, but we seem to have entered a situation as, as Jeff suggested in which uh, and as, as I'll start with Sarah, that Congress is not legislating. The president comes into office with executive actions, either through executive orders or regulatory actions. Those are promptly challenged in states uh, dominated by judges and uh, you know and the like of members of the opposite party, which promptly result in uh, nationwide injunctions or years of. Administrative litigation, APA, back and forth, or whatever. At which right point, when
2: you get it resolved, we have a new president. An uh, <laughs>
1: and, and, and we, you know, and so you know, there's a couple of things that are sort of are put in there. One is, you know, most importantly, is is the absence of actual legislation addressing the issues of the day. And just to tie the badgers to something that Jeff was saying, um, look, the the real, in my view, original error uh, when we talk about the Clean Air Act and the like is Massachusetts versus EPA one of the first cases recognizing state standing, the Supreme Court, thinking that it was helping to solve the problem of climate change, recognized that the EPA under its pollutant laws, its laws designed to go direct pollutants, could actually reach greenhouse gases, which, you know, weren't, carbon dioxide was not previously understood to be actually a pollutant. And so the court gave the EPA that authority, and, you know, I'm not an expert on environmental law, but we've basically spent the last 15 plus years going back and forth with Administrative action, somewhat, mostly not addressing, you know, issues of climate change, and Congress has, you know, has, has stood, stood by the wayside. So, in any event, I guess, the, I guess, the question is, what, what can be done uh, to get Congress to legislate? When we start ask it that way, um, if anything, uh, or are we just condemned to ping-ponging executive slash judicial challenges that more or less go, you know, two steps forward, one step back? maybe two steps back.
2: Non-delegation major question doctrine need to be given, uh, like, Major League Baseball level steroids. Like, they need to be superhero gremlins eating everything in their wake. And that, I mean, I actually agree with your jurisdictional point, too. I like that one. I might add it. Like We can make a nice little trio. Uh, And then the court just says we're out of the business, which is, again, we we weren't going to talk about the substance of the Dobbs um, draft opinion, but That's largely what they're doing with abortion. (laughs) You have Roe. It doesn't work. Casey, let's try to fix it. We need to get out of the business of this. Lower court. See? Undue burden. Just figure that out. It's easy. It's obvious what it is. And then case after case after case. Just since 2015, since Obergefell. We've had no Obergefells at the court since 2015. But we've had three major before Dobbs. uh, Hellerstat. June Medical. Okay, then Dobbs. Am I missing one? Anyway... Lots of abortion cases percolating up, and that's not even all of them. There's tons at the circuit. Out of the business of abortion, get out of the business of uh, dealing with executive action. And once the executive is stopped, the court's out of the business too, Congress is left.
3: Let, Let me add one more. Political question doctrine,
2: right? Ooh, scary. Nah,
3: I've been overturned on that before, but it, it, it exists. I mean, there there, there there, are disputes that the courts have no business in, right? And so... Well,
2: that, that could be an interesting... Same idea. Yeah, same, yeah. Same
3: idea. Uh, Jeff, Judge, you...
4: I, so my own view might be a little more nuanced than Sarah's. Uh, <laughs> I, I think, look, uh, I, I think the courts should make it harder to bring some of these cases by returning to things like the Mel and No Patriae and <clears throat> No Nationwide Injunctions and Nationwide Vacature and, and that sort of thing. That would close the courts to some of these suits, but but not all of them, you'll still have the executive overreach and push at the boundaries of executive orders in order to make up for the lack of congressional action. And the courts will still have to respond to that by interpreting texts the way they normally do and striking down the executive when it overreaches. And you will end up then in a sort of stasis, right? You have a country that's equally divided, which is why Congress can't act. And the only solution to that, I think, is political and not legal, which is to say reforming these doctrines will not affect that kind of social change. During the periods in our country where we have been equally divided and sat in that sort of stasis, it has taken someone who could come along, you know, a Reagan or a Clinton, who could capture the middle, serve as a strong executive, and prompt congressional action. Now, maybe that won't be the outlet this time around. Uh, maybe it will be something else. But um, but I think if if, if it, we we can. We can help the problem, I think, by, in, in the courts. Um, but I, I don't think that even if we did all the things Sarah wants to do, and I don't know that I'm on board with the whole checklist, uh, I, 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 I just think it's, it, it, our problem is much larger. And we have an equally divided country, but more or less sitting on two poles that you know vacillates between 52 and 48 in any kind of uh, given election. And we shouldn't expect uh, that until someone can come along and you know whose ideas and ability to articulate them can capture the middle. We shouldn't expect that a lot should happen. And it's um, what we're getting is the result of the institutions we've set up. And, you know, both sides are equally frustrated, which is sort of as it should be in a world where no one can capture the median voter. Um, and, and so I, I don't, I don't know. I hear a lot that like our institutions are failing us. And I, I guess I'm less sure that that's true as opposed to, um, we're just unable to obtain agreement on questions. And when you can't agree, nothing happens. But, but,
3: but part of that needs to be, uh, it- Defending the institutions. I completely explain, agree. Explaining that the institutions are critical; that that they're not means to ends, but that they they have value in and of themselves. So, so let's go back to Calvin Coolidge. I mean, I'm, you know, when, when's the last time that you had uh, an an executive who really understand And I'm I'm not saying we go back to Calvin Coolidge, but just the point right. that 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 an, an executive who understands the role of the president, uh, Congress understands the role of Congress. Court that understands the role of courts because I think it's too simplistic here. We started with a, a great explanation uh, by by Steve of of the separation of powers. I don't think we can get off that. That's so critical to to, to what this republic is about. You know, Jeff Jeff Sutton's recent book. I love the title. Who decides, right? I mean, that's the most fundamental issue the Constitution asks. Who decides? And it matters. And so my pipe dream is that we have uh, an elite class, a political class, that, that... talks about that instead of just and just instead of the ends that are reached the policies reach how you get there is every bit as important now as I hear myself say that that just <laughs> sounds completely silly and naive but you got to start somewhere
4: but it doesn't I mean in the sense that like the 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 proposals to expand the court were I think naked attacks on institutions um, and they you know they've gone nowhere right. as they should have and I think plenty of us are out there all the time saying no they're not politicians in robes they have disagreements about how you should measure the law some of them tend to care more about process and methodology some of them tend to care more about results and outcomes and I'm not saying either is right or wrong though that's just a description some care more about what result you achieve in a particular case and some care more about how you get there and that's a legitimate disagreement to have about how you interpret law and every day academics and judges are fighting that for the soul of the law and that doesn't mean they're politicians in robes it just means they have and people should say that but I'm looking for
3: something broader. I mean, the example of President Obama saying, okay, if you don't work with me, I've got a phone and a pen. What, well, in, my, in my ideal world, people don't say that. <laughs> they, 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 they don't say that, because they've run on this understanding of what the role of a president is. Uh, you, you, don't, you don't have senators Using institutional arguments when it favors their president, but not when it disfavors them. I mean, that's the we're never going to get there. We're never going to get there. But we need to do what we can to push push things. So
2: I said I I was working on a grand unified theory, and my uh, wolves beaver situation is actually just this one sliver of the grand unified theory. But it gets to this question. Uh, You know, Alaska just instituted a new election process. It's a cattle call, nonpartisan primary. Everyone runs on one ballot together, the top four move to the general, and then when you go with your ballot in November, you rank them one through four. It maximizes voter preference in a totally unique way. Obviously, New York and San Francisco, um, Maine have tried ranked choice voting, but this is like ranked choice voting on steroids because it also fixes the primary process. We have the fewest number of competitive congressional districts that we will have had in the country's history. That is part of this story. Gerrymandering is part of this story. The big sword is part of this story. But partisan primaries are not the way we started running this country. And it wasn't the way we ran it for 120, 30 years. They're relatively new. And then, even then, really, like, uh, we weren't really having real primaries. It was, you know, a couple dudes... Picking who was going to be the person. Um, it has been a failed experiment. And if you want to fix some of these other incentives, you've got to change, again, who's incentivized to run in the first place and then who wins and then what their incentives are once they're there.
1: Fair enough. So we, we have ranged far and wide.
3: <laughs> we start with D- the D- League D- and, D- and we D- now rewritten uh, the,
1: re- restructured the political. Uh, yeah, the, the, the solutions to changing incentives and changing things like partisan primaries yeah. are probably uh, a little bit more elusive. Uh, we're almost out of time. Maybe it's maybe we can take some questions from the audience if there's folks who. Oh, I see somebody. Oh no, I see somebody with a microphone. <laughs> oh, I, we have a
3: volunteer over
4: here. Hi, good morning. Should be the Supreme Court have a code of conduct binding for themselves? A code of conduct?
2: Could, yeah, code a of a conduct bio- binding should, the Supreme Court, should, like should, it was should, on
1: you? Yeah, should the Supreme Court have a ethical code of conduct that binds
3: the justices? So I'm the only one that doesn't. Well, maybe I, maybe I will practice in front of the Supreme Court, so maybe I better be very careful. Uh, I, I, <laughs> so I, I have confidence um, in, in, in this court and and when and when the chief says we're looking at it, we're going to put together something for for us. I I, I have confidence that 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 they'll do that. So uh, I I'm not one of those that that looks at this current court and thinks something is is awry or or, or amiss. But
2: I'm also a big fan, as you can probably already tell, of. That it's more important to align incentives than to have rules, and I think our failed experiment with campaign finance uh, reform in 2002 proves that. Rules don't help if you don't have the right people in the spirit of the rules to follow them. So I'd much rather care about the justices and who we're picking to put up there than having some set of rules that I think inevitably uh, they can the bad people could get around and the good people would follow anyway.
1: Yeah. And then- I mean, I, I do agree. With, I agree with Judge Griffith that it's, it's not clear to me that there is a problem right. in, in this respect of the Supreme Court that needs to be solved. It seems so much so often when we're talking about recusals and ethics, it's people seeking to force the recusal of someone whose vote they expect they will not get. So, in other words, it's outcome determinative, and people don't seem to have sort of consistent standards in this. And you know, by and large, it's it's difficult to to, to identify a number of issues with the court's decisions that truly reflect conflicts of interest.
4: Yeah, I, for whatever it's worth, you know there was this study sometime in the last year about you know all these cases and it you know the headline was you know hundreds of examples of conflicts of interest found and you know judges uh, sitting on cases where they had some conflict. I have to say my reaction was a little bit different when I dug into the numbers because the sample size is absolutely huge. So you know you, you sort of look at it and it's something like a 98% rate or 99%, and then you know what you find are, you know, there were a handful of courts uh, that didn't have great reporting systems and so you had examples of judges sitting on cases and not realizing that they owned some amount of stock and somebody it was an interesting party. But the interesting thing, nobody so there was no example of a judge being aware of a conflict or not recusing in a situation was there really was a financial issue that was called to the judge's attention. And so I have to say that I my, my reaction to it was it was sort of like a uh, it was a, like a solution in search of a problem. Like, it, it just seemed to confirm that the vast bulk of judges do it right in virtually every case, and the errors that happened were inadvertent, and courts have sought to correct them. So, I, 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 you know, maybe that's some concrete evidence of sort of what Judge Griffith was saying, which is, you know, I, I have to say that I, I don't um, – setting aside, like, whether it would even be constitutional for Congress to try to mandate it on another branch, whether – I guess I, I just don't see a need –
2: and I think the spousal conflict stuff will disproportionately hurt women. <laughs> yep,
5: the the micro up there. Hi, uh, Garrett Snedeker, 4 um, E at Scalia, and um, also at the James Wilson Institute. Um, Jeff, I thought your uh, remarks were just so comprehensive and, and, and precise. Um, thank you so much for them. I think, I think it, it, it helped clarify um, just what the stakes were here, especially with um, just you know, contextualizing that we, we've been living in a leak climate for quite a while now. Um, some people would say it went back to the Roe decision itself leaking uh, uh, a few weeks earlier. Um, uh, but even more recently, I thought the Bostock uh, rumors were the worst kept secret in Washington for five months. Um, and uh, and and of course, you brought up the Biscupic. Um, uh, you know, one week uh, uh, on CNN.com, just releasing more juicy tidbits from within the court, suggesting that a justice himself or herself may have been uh, her actual source. Um, so I think it's very important to put um, to put this in you know uh, to put this in, in 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 the context of something that's you know unprecedented for an actual opinion being leaked, but not unprecedented for now, sort of the weaponization. Uh, of information, um, but I think it gets to something which we haven 't talked about, which is the asymmetry between um, the incentives on one side of the political aisle for, for a leak and then the other side now. One of the reasons why it just seems so unfathomable that a clerk to a Republican-appointed justice would have leaked is because of the Sally Yates uh, uh, phenomenon. There is no structure on the right that would laud and hold up a a Republican-appointed clerk, uh, a clerk to a Republican-appointed justice, um, the the way that Sally Yates, as part of the resistance, did from within the Department of Justice. This is something that, again, if a clerk to a Republican-appointed justice did this, it, it would, you know, it, it would put this per person in, in, in an unhirable position for the rest of his or her life, whereas I think there's, there's an enormous ecosystem by which a, uh, a clerk to a Democratic appointed justice that wanted to make it as his or her defining mark for the rest of his or her career, um, that person would be just fine. Um, the question then becomes, what do you do when you have Democratic senators who lauded the, the uh, the actions of the leak, you know, prodded by the activist left like Demand Justice. What do you do when, the, when there's just such a, a, an asymmetry? Do you have to then push for the largest possible criminal sanctions on anybody who leaks because there's just no, there's no way you can ever unring this bell. The norm is dead.
4: So I guess that's for me. Um, and I, I, Garrett, I guess I just want to push back a little bit, right? Which is... I'm not sure that we could sort of say that the structural incentives are so different yet or that one side is purer than the other because, you know, there wasn't an outcry from the right when the Bostock rumor circulated around town or when the journal op-ed appeared. There were not people on the right in the Senate or elsewhere standing up and saying, this is outrageous, this shouldn't be going on. You know, we were content to sort of let it go when it seemed like um, it it um, might serve our ends too. And so I, I think we need to let this play itself out a little bit before we cast stones. But I will say, Garrett, that part of the reason that I, I hope that they find who did this is because I do think it's it's very re- very important to have what I would think of as an appropriate response, and we'll see and if the time comes and if which less likely than not, but if they're able to find out who did it, um, and if that person doesn't face the consequences like termination and disbarment that you know would be appropriate in a situation like this, then I think your point's probably a fair one um, because I mean I look I am I am quite certain that if Justice Scalia's clerk had been found to do this, he would have shown up at the disbarment hearing himself <laughs> and made the case. So, I, you know, but I, I just think it's, it's too early to say how this will play itself out. And it's, I, I, I think it's too early to say that one side can, 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 um, can claim high moral ground on this. We have a problem. We, it was better under the old system we ought to try to get back to the old system and let's uh, let's let the investigation play itself out, I think, before we before we come to judgments on 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 questions like that.
2: Yeah. I just think it would be particularly rich right now for Republicans to try to claim a high moral ground on uh, much of anything um, given recent events. And that um, exactly right. If it were a six three liberal court, you think that Republicans would be acting particularly the same? No. They, they're winning. That's why they're acting magnanimous. It's easy to be magnanimous when you're winning.
4: And look, and just be careful of the assumptions, right? Because we don't, like, you know, imagine it turns out that this is like an employee at the court who showed up six months ago or a year ago and hadn't been there. You know, I, I, we're coming at it with a lot of baggage that, you know, could shift depending on what we find out and put this all in a in a totally different light. In which case, a lot of the speculation that people have engaged in about who did what would be, would be, uh, Really, really unfortunate.
1: Well, I, I think uh, I think that we're we're out of time, and I think we can all agree. I, I think that it's important to be judicious uh, when it comes uh, to these questions, and hopefully, I, I do agree and uh, with Jeff that it's important. And I hope that they are actually able to find an answer to this, and and then people have plenty of time to debate and uh, talk about uh, you know you know what what should what should follow from that, but.
0: So this was really great. I want to thank this panel for a really fabulous, engaged discussion.